To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges just. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good afternoon, and welcome to Christ the King Anglican Church, Toronto. I want to start by giving thanks for Glenn, who has preached the last eight Sundays in a row in our Matthew series. Every week, Glenn has brought us fresh insights into familiar passages by translating them from scratch and has provided us footnotes from various scholars and his own notes about where he has landed after wrestling with the text. We have been so blessed, um, and so I just want to say thank you, Glenn, wherever you are out there in Zoom land. For the remainder of August, uh, Glenn will have a well-deserved break from sermon prep and preaching, and he's not with us today, but he will be back with us next, uh, next Sunday. So I'm preaching today, and David is going to be preaching, I believe, the last two Sundays of, of August. The week before last week, uh, my husband Gary and I and the Alaska's family were at Camp Pannonia, uh, as they say it, um, in beautiful Perry Sound at a week-long family camp. During that week, I was leading the adults in uh, a study of the first letter of Peter. So today I'm going to share some of that study with you. Our text is 1 Peter 2.13 to 3.7 that uh, Karina read for us. Um, so I encourage you to have your, your Bibles open uh, to, to that uh, passage. First Peter is a letter that begins with a joyful hymn of praise to God for the living hope that we have because of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But even in this opening hymn of praise, Peter highlights suffering as a Christian because he is writing to Christians who are suffering. And the purpose of his letter is to encourage them to stand firm in their hope as they face suffering. Our passage today contains within it the heart of Peter's letter which is the suffering of Jesus Christ, our suffering Messiah. So we're going to start there and work outward to the rest of the passage, which is about the witness of suffering as a Christian. 
So please look in your Bibles at chapter 2, verse 22 to 24. It says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By his wounds, you have been healed. Even though the crucifixion of the perfect, sinless Jesus Christ was arguably the most unjust event in all of history, as Christians, we don't think of it that way. Because his suffering is at the heart of the gospel of our salvation. In these three brief verses, we see Jesus enacting his own teaching, loving his enemies, not reviling those who revile him, not threatening those who torture him, but instead bearing their sins and ours, bringing healing and transformation. This is the act that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. And Peter says in verse 23 of chapter 2, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The word translated entrust is really important in this letter. It's the Greek word that means hand over. This is the word used in the Gospels when Judas handed over Jesus to be arrested. And this is the word used in the Gospels when Pontius Pilate handed over Jesus to be crucified. Those events suggest that Jesus was handed over to unjust suffering and death, and he was. But in verse 23 of our passage, Peter interprets what was really going on. He says that in the whole of Jesus' suffering, he was handing himself over to the will of God, the Father, for our sake. So chapter 2, verse 22 to 24, is the heart of our passage. It's the heart of Peter's letter and the heart of the gospel. Our suffering Savior handed himself over to the Father for the sake of his enemies 
including us. Yes and amen. However, Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering in the early years of the church. That Jesus suffered for them and us is incredibly significant and meaningful. But now they are suffering for him in the sense that because they are known as his followers, they are persecuted. The whole rest of Peter's letter speaks into that reality. So backing up one verse from what we read, chapter 2 verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. For to this you have been called. What's the this? Backing up further to verses 19 and 20, we find out. The this is to bear up under unjust suffering or suffer for doing good while having minds set on God and his will. In other words, handing oneself over to God and his will. This is exactly what Jesus did. So verse 21 goes on to say, Jesus is not only our savior by his suffering, but also our example, that we might follow in his steps as we face suffering. But wait a minute. Jesus' suffering was unique and uniquely meaningful. His perfect, sinless sacrifice of himself has made it possible for the sins of the world to be forgiven so that all who turn to him in repentance and faith can be reconciled to God. We cannot add anything to what he has done by our suffering. So why should we follow his example in facing unjust suffering? What purpose can our suffering possibly serve? To answer this, remember how I said Jesus' suffering enacted his teaching, love your enemies? This is teaching that he gave his followers. Anyone who has made any attempt to try to do this will know that loving your enemies is pretty much guaranteed to involve suffering of some kind. This suffering of itself cannot save you or anyone else, but it is a powerful witness that Points, to points people to Jesus. That a person is willing to suffer in order to obey the teaching and example of Jesus speaks volumes about the worthiness of Jesus, such that others want to know more about him. In history and still today, the church grows rapidly as a result 
of such witness. In summary, only Jesus' suffering saves, because by it, he brought us to God. Our suffering cannot save, but the witness of our suffering in order to obey Jesus and follow his example can bring others to him, even our enemies who cause the suffering. And when others come to him, he can save them. Our passage is about this kind of witness and its evangelistic potential. In our passage, there are four parallel exhortations to submit to various authorities and persons. But in each case, the underlying call is to follow Jesus' example of handing oneself over to God and his will through such submission. Now, if there is one thing in our day that we are highly allergic to, it's the idea of submission. We don't like it. We are big on freedom. And for us, freedom equals personal autonomy. But Peter has a very different idea about freedom. So let's look at that first and then work through the four parallel sections of our passage. So in chapter 2, verse 16, Peter claims that freedom equals being servants of God. You can take a look at it, chapter 2, verse 16. It says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The phrase translated servants of God is literally God's slaves. How can Peter say that to live as free people is the same as being God's slaves? What definition for freedom is Peter using here? I want to suggest to you that Peter's definition is this. Freedom is the capacity to do the right thing, that is the God thing, God's will, regardless of how you are treated. Let me say that again. Freedom is the capacity to do the right thing regardless of how you are treated. You are not under the control of another person if they cannot change your behavior by treating you well or by treating you badly. You are, however, under God's control as you do the right thing according to his will. It might seem like asserting your own will rather than being under God's will would be more free, but that's an illusion and often results in what our verse calls using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Now remember that Peter and his readers lived in a very different society than we do. They lived in the Roman Empire. 
uh, in the first century, where the inhumane institution of slavery was the engine of the economy. Enslaved people were treated as the property of their masters. And women were also treated as property, either of their fathers or of their husbands. Such a view of a fellow human being is, of course, entirely unbiblical. The Bible says human beings were made in the image of God, and the Gospel testifies that every human being um, is of immeasurable worth because Christ died for every one of us. In writing to Christians living in that society, Peter acknowledges the unjust treatment that his readers are suffering. Yet he calls for submission to, not rebellion against, authority. Even when that authority is unjust. He points to the example of Jesus and his revolution of grace rather than force. Peter emphasizes the power of the witness to Jesus when his followers continue to do good even when they are unfairly treated. Peter is most interested in what will have the maximum evangelistic potential because winning your enemy rather than retaliating against your enemy is the Jesus way. Now just to warn you, tragically some of the texts we're about to look at have been historically and can, can still be today misused to justify abusive treatment of people. In reading Bible texts like these, it is important to be aware of both uh, the difficulties of interpreting for our cultural moment a biblical text written in a very different cultural moment, and the difficulties in handling a biblical text that has a history of being mishandled. But these difficulties do not give us permission to cut passages out of the Bible. Rather, we are to wrestle with them, seeking for God to speak to us through them, just as he speaks to us through the rest of his word. So here we go with the, with the four parallel passages about submission. We start in verse 13 with a general exhortation to all Peter's readers. Be subject for the Lord's sake. It is ultimately to him that we are submitting. So be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's about witness. That those who would mock you would be silenced by your doing good. Then here's the verse we looked at before. 
live as people who are free. Not using their freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Again, it is really to the Lord that we are submitting as his servants. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So that's the first passage. And the next continues in the same vein, exhorting submission as witness. So beginning in verse 18, Peter addresses those who are enslaved. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Important note here. Peter is in no way endorsing the institution of slavery. But neither is he calling for its immediate overthrow. Rather, he writes to those enslaved to earthly masters as his fellow Christians. And in the immediately following verses, Peter speaks of their real master and his, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who came to earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life to ransom all of us from the slavery of sin and death. But although Peter speaks thus, his words have been misused in the past by is absolutely reprehensible. But we need to acknowledge that it happened and that many are still living with the painful generational memories and consequences of such spiritual and physical abuse. Friends, there is a woman in our congregation whose ancestors, going back to the 1800s, were slaves in Antigua. She tells the story of how on Sundays, the slave owners would follow the Bible by giving their horses a Sabbath rest and instead make their slaves pull their carriages to go to their local Anglican church where the slaves were not allowed in the church and had to wait outside to pull the carriages home again. God have mercy. Moving on to chapter 3. There are two exhortations concerning submission in marriage. Three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 say, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, 
they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The word likewise is important here. It links back to the previous exhortations. The general one in 2.13 and the, the one to slaves in 2.18. It is again for the sake of the Lord handing oneself over to him that Peter calls Christian wives to be subject to their husbands, even those husbands who are not Christians, and who in those days may have treated their wives pretty much like they treated their slaves. Peter will have more to say to husbands who are Christians in a moment. Peter again emphasizes witness and evangelistic potential that the respectful and pure conduct of Christ-following wives would be a witness for Christ and may win their husbands to him. Now remember that the low status of women at this time meant a wife may not have had much say in who she married. Uh, it's also possible that a, women, uh, a woman was already married when she became a Christ-follower. Anyways, Please do not misread this text today as encouraging missionary dating. It goes for men and women. Um, if you follow Jesus and have a choice in whether to marry and whom to marry, please seek for a spouse who also follows Jesus. Looking at the verses that follow uh, these two, Verses 3 and 4 encourage women to cultivate inner beauty uh, rather than focus on outer beauty. Um, I think this principle can extend to men also in the sense that good character and true holiness beat talk and appearances every time. Uh, verses 5 and 6 cite the example of holy women of the past. Here we must be especially careful with interpretation. Uh, the key thing is where it says in verse 5 that these holy women of the past put their hope in God. This is again a sign that they were ultimately submitting to God and handing themselves over to him as they were subject to their husbands. In verse 6, Peter encourages Christian wives to continue to do good and not fear, even as there may have been some cause to be frightened. There were no domestic abuse hotlines in biblical times, but God-fearers and Christ-followers of both genders have always had the Lord in every age and have been able to cry out to him and trust him. However, I like hotlines, so please do not fail to use them if you are aware of an, an abusive situation. Do for all involved in any abusive situation is to hold the abuser accountable. Peter follows up with an exhortation to Christian husbands in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives 
in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of, great, of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's that word likewise again. It puts this exhortation in parallel with the others, which again means that behind it is the call to submit to God and hand oneself over to him in bearing witness to Christ. But the specifics are different. Whereas Peter exhorted wives to be subject to their husbands, he exhorts husbands to be understanding toward and show honor to their wives. He states that wives are heirs with their husbands of the grace of life in Christ. In other words, they are equal before God. But Peter also refers to wives as the weaker vessel. In what sense are wives weaker than their husbands? In what sense are women weaker than men? Over the centuries and even today, there, there have uh, been dismissive suggestions that women are somehow inferior intellectually, psychologically, or morally. Uh, let's not go there. So what does this mean? At the time when Peter was writing, uh, women were certainly more socially vulnerable than men. So, for example, Eugene Peterson, in his message paraphrase of this verse, speaks of women lacking some of the advantages of their husbands, rather than being weaker. Perhaps. But even today, in our super politically correct society, there is an acknowledgement that, on average, biological females are not as physically strong as biological males. And it's also clear that bearing children and caring for infants make women more in need of support and protection. Whatever the lack or need referred to by this idea of wives being the weaker vessel, Peter calls for husbands to serve their wives in understanding, respectful ways that treat them as equal partners before the Lord. And Peter adds a serious warning, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This does not just mean that you get tongue-tied praying the Lord's Prayer. Your prayers are your relationship with the Lord. For your prayers to be hindered is to be cut off in your relationship with Him. Not a small matter. Let me give you an example. I once heard a bishop from South America tell uh, this story. He said that he had what, was, what he called a row with his wife, an argument of some kind, that left her in tears. And then he left because he had to go preach somewhere. On the way to preach, he described that the Holy Spirit said to him, fine, you go preach, I'm staying home with your wife. At this powerful rebuke of the Holy Spirit, he turned the car around and went back to his wife. He repented and made up with her, rather than attempt to preach, cut off 
from the Holy Spirit. A final word about these uh, verses that we've looked at in chapter 3. These verses treat wives and husbands as co-heirs of life in Christ, uh, equal before God, and they call on both wives and husbands to submit to the Lord in their relationship with each other. However, the description of marriage here is not symmetrical. How much of this is, is cultural for the time that Peter was writing? And how much of this is fundamental in God's created order? I'm not going to weigh in on that here. Instead, I encourage us to remember the context of Peter's letter and not lose sight of his emphasis on witness and uh, evangelistic potential while facing suffering. Therefore, here's what I want to say in summary to these verses. I'm almost done. Men, in your treatment of women in general and husbands, in your treatment of your wives in particular, um, if, if that treatment is not bringing glory to God and is not a good witness to Christ, then shape up and don't hide behind complementarian arguments. And women, if your treatment of men in general Wives, if your treatment of your husbands in particular is not bringing glory to God and is not a good witness to Christ, shape up and don't hide behind egalitarian. Everyone, respect and honor one another as fellow Christians. And married couples, work out your part, uh, partnership for the Lord's sake and for the sake of the watching world that doesn't know Him. In conclusion, we've been looking at a passage from 1 Peter and reflecting on suffering and witness, freedom and submission. And we've really only scratched the surface of these huge things. But I want to bring us back to where we started, to our suffering Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, handing himself over to God's will for our sake loving us in the most profound way possible while we were still his enemies. Many things have changed since Peter wrote his letter, but this has not changed. To be a Christian means to trust Christ as our Savior and to follow him in his footsteps.